Welcome to the Fully Delighted Podcast, a hopeful and helpful resource from South Mountain Community Church, a multi-site church in Utah. Each week we will be hearing from our staff as we explore what makes SMCC unique, as well as what it means to be fully devoted and fully delighted in Jesus Christ. We hope this podcast can be a helpful resource for you to take your next step with Jesus. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fully Delighted Podcast. My name is Adam and I get to serve as the pastor of Central Ministries here at South Mountain Community Church. And uh, today we uh, get to continue in our, our, our podcast series going through the kingdom is like series jumping a little bit deeper into it. So if you're just jumping in now, it's probably worth you going back and uh, and listening to the previous episodes. Uh, but what we have today is something a little bit different. As we mentioned last week, even on the podcast, uh, Eric, uh, Pastor Eric is out of town, um, and we have a different guest. So we have Trevor as usual, so Trevor is here. Glad to be here. Yeah. And then who we have instead of Eric is Pastor Mike from our Draper campus. I'm like the dollar store version of Eric. You no 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 you you have you 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 compliment his work you have you you know a lot of things about very specific things. Well, thank you. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Mike's like a walking encyclopedia, basically, <laughs> of useless information. <laughs> like a like a walking theological encyclopedia. Yeah. It's it's just like yeah. I don't know. Like Eric knows certain things, and then there's definitely things that I'm like, no, Mike would want to talk about this. Yeah, especially if it's weird. That's, that's, that's what I'm if, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, I yes. want to talk about it. If I want to know the origin of some like strange theological trend or thought, you're the person I go to. <laughs> yeah. Don't know why I'm collecting those little tidbits, but I am. Yeah, I wasn't going to say it, Mike, but I'm like, yeah, if it's like kind of like a weird offshoot like thing, like Mike knows, Mike knows something about it. So that is that is there for us. Um, so what I want to do today, it's funny. We, last week, we we got to take a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail, which is great. We had a question from... Stacia, I believe is how you say her name, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and uh, told Eric that she was going to pass along some questions. We got to answer the first half of them, and now we're going to answer kind of the second half of them. So I hope that you guys are ready with some um, some answers for this question. I want to read her question, or I might even just summarize it. So she had a question referring to, uh, in short, uh, a reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that is from uh, basically Apostle Paul talking about communion. Now, communion is something that um, if you are in a religious context or in church, you probably have some familiarity with it. Now, what's in particular here is something that Paul says in her question. Uh, it's basically asking about how Paul talks about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And um, she just asked if we can shed some light on this verse um, and then some other questions. But let's let's kind of start with there. And I'll, and I'll give you my context. I was talking to Trevor about um about this at lunch, and I'm even curious Mike's take on this. I grew up in the church, and I can't remember if you did or not. You did, Mike? No, no. I was okay. a garden variety pagan. That's right. Until you I always, was 24. Yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what I remember about growing up in church is that this was always brought up, and it wasn't super clear about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And kind of the assumption was in the church that I grew up in was that you shouldn't take it if uh, you are an unbeliever. That was kind of just the broad umbrella statement. Now, I feel like I've got a little bit more context since then. I've been able to do some research, but I'm, but I, really, I'm not here to, uh, <laughs> I'm not here to give answers, really. I'm here to <laughs> run the board and then uh, get you guys talking. So 
do you want to read what she's referencing in chapter 11 in Corinthians? Just that people yeah, have a yeah. contextual starting, awareness for that. Starting in verse 27. I'll just read through it here. Um, so 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is, uh, seems to be a euphemism for, for actual death. Mm-hmm. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Um, and then he goes on to give some specific instructions. Yeah. So the question is, uh, what's going on there? What is this yeah. talking about? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, that is... Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things you go, oh, wow, this is interesting. So, I mean, there's more to unpack there, but let's, let's start with the unworthy manner. What is your, you guys are both incredibly smart people. So what are we looking at here? <laughs> I'll, I'll take a question. stab at go, it and then yeah, feel free it. to jump in. Yeah. Um, I think when you take the passage in its entire context, going back to verse 17, where this whole section begins, you see that Paul, um, he, he clearly opens up saying, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. So he's like, he's, <laughs> he's upset with how they're Smack doing. Down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he goes on to describe that uh, he's saying, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So at this time, when the church would gather together, they would have this uh, almost like a communion wasn't just like a little a little wafer and a little little dish of uh, juice. It was a full meal that they would have uh, that included the elements of bread and wine representative of Jesus's body and blood. And he's saying, when you come together, you're not actually doing that because of the divisive way in which you're eating, because the church in Corinth was made up of people who were rich, people who were poor. One of the wonderful things about the gospel is that it does bring together people across all these different socioeconomic divides, people from all different walks of life, and brings us into unity. And yet they were celebrating this meal, gathering together in such a way that didn't celebrate or even foster their unity, but actually made it worse. It was even more divisive. The people who had a lot were feasting and even getting drunk, while the people who were poor were coming later and were hungry and had nothing to eat or drink. And so it was just kind of wreaking havoc on the community. And I think when Paul, in verse 29, when he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, there's a chance that, you know, in the very next chapter, he goes into developing this metaphor of the church is the body of Christ, the body of the Lord. So to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is basically to, to, to eat and drink in a way that remembers what Jesus did for us in a way that's actually offensive to the people that you're united to because of what Jesus did, that it's, it's more divisive than anything. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily... Uh, I, I, not even necessarily. I don't think it has anything to do with, um, you know, eating the bread and drinking the wine or the juice if you're not a Christian. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about uh, to do it in an unworthy manner is to practice communion in such a way that is divisive and even offensive to um, brothers and sisters in the church. So that's that's what I would say. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Kind of taking the Lord's name in vain in the practice of taking communion with when your heart's not in order and and it's it's sort of baked in as an assumption that unbelievers are not going to take communion so yeah i I would never like like trevor just said i would never use these verses to to make that point although i guess technically it kind of does yeah but but it's more about your heart coming to the table and doesn't i i seem to remember paul says something like some people come hungry Mm -hmm. when they're not supposed to become like don't you have Mm-hmm. homes to eat in or something oh. doesn't he say yeah, he something like that, that. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's like so you're not really supposed to come and treat it like a feast and and so it sounds like people were kind of um 
doing the communion thing as an afterthought in that mm-hmm. in, in that context. They were coming more for the food than for communion. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. so the question then becomes, oh, well, man, if people were dying because they were taking it in an un- unworthy manner, is that something we need to worry about today? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I've never known anybody who expired after taking communion because they took it in an unworthy manner. I wonder, though, if this was God setting a precedent the same way he did with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, when they die after yeah. lying about how much how much uh, profit they received or how much they gave to the church. They, they said they gave it all, but they only gave some, and they drop dead after Peter pronounces judgment on them, and you're like, whoa. Well, mm-hmm. that's another thing that doesn't happen today. But again, precedent in the early church, God's mm-hmm. making a point. You don't want to do these things in a haphazard way. Um, or, or with, with, you know, impure motives. And so, yeah. but, so then that begs the question, well, what is the application for today? If you're going to take communion in an unworthy manner, what does that look like? And I think that has been super confusing because people are like, okay, well then, um, does that mean I can't have any sin in my heart? Is that, does that mean that I've got to make sure that I've confessed every bad thing that I've been doing lately? That's what I was raised with. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, and, and then, so where's the line? Like, what about the sins of omission? You know, like, should there be a long... Uh, prayer time before communion where we're confessing everything we can think of and confessing things that we aren't aware that we're doing. <laughs> right, right. And I'm not exactly sure. I think certainly um, if if somebody is participating actively in an act of disobedience in their life, they, they really should take that into account before they get up there and, and grab the elements. But for the average believer walking in with, with a heart that is towards the Lord— I don't think they need to be overly concerned about this. I mean, as a guy who struggles with OCD, I could see this being a really pro- a big problem for some people. Yep. Yeah. It's like, I can never take communion again because there's always going to be something I'm doing that I'm not aware of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway. It, what's yeah. interesting is communion is a is like a reminder that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And uh, what like certain interpretations of this have produced is people are afraid to take communion because if I do it wrong, I'm going to get punished. And yeah. It's like, yeah. And it's like the very Oh, the irony. Do, yeah, right? Exactly. Like... <laughs> No, you're not going to get punished because Jesus already took all of the punishment for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just an invitation to reflection, really. At least that's how I approach communion, to really... Uh, there's like a sobriety to the moment, not because there's a risk of punishment, but just because um, I think it's a chance to really uh, think deeply and reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus did go through on our behalf. Uh, and we've certainly avo- uh, we've um, eliminated the opportunity to take advantage of the meal by not actually having a meal. And yes. so yeah. <laughs> nobody can come hungry unless they're going to take a whole handful of, of, of crackers out of the thing, you know, like, yeah. so yeah. at least that's not there. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I mean, also, you know, I mean, and again, let's speak about the context that we live in, in Western society in 2023. Um, there is still people who, um, in, in pockets that have, um, what would that be called? Food insecurity, right? That's, mm-hmm. that still happens, but sure. the majority, let's, let's just say, you know, the majority of people here in Utah or in the Valley, there's a huge chunk of people who don't, who, who probably wouldn't be coming hungry per se. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just because exactly. of the way that we live now. It was kind of funny. The, you know how we, we have juice mm-hmm. instead of wine. Mm-hmm. That actually was a Protestant development, the Welch family, Welch's grape juice. The reason they created that, because no. uh, like grapes naturally produce wine. They don't make right. grape juice. So they had to like create this new process to basically create like non-alcoholic grape juice for communion because they were Protestant oh. and uh, at that time didn't want to, didn't want to drink wine. Didn't Fascinating. We, I did not know that. 
Man, you guys already got the price of mission here with, with this. Um, yeah, so I guess if we can even sum it up, and I'll give a little bit on, on my side of it too. I, uh, one thing I'll just mention on quickly, again, because there might be listeners that came from my background as well. It was kind of like this thing in the church where if you're not a believer, don't touch it. It's a bad thing. Don't touch it. And it's like, I, I, I truly don't believe that there's any there's any type, type of harsh or special judgment on an unbeliever that no. partakes in communion. But if you're a non-believer, there's no purpose in you taking part in communion. You're not remembering something or reflecting on something. Like mm-hmm. So that's how I usually try to explain at church is like, if you're not a believer here, I'm not trying to shame you and say like, I'm protecting you from lightning coming down from heaven on you. I'm just saying... There's no, there's no good reason for you to partake in this just because you're not reflecting on sure. something that you, that's all that's mm-hmm. like simple enough. Um, and then, yeah. And then if we're going to take an eternal truth from this and apply it to us now, it's like, don't come in a manner like this church was doing where they were coming for the food. They were creating more division in the church than unity. Mm-hmm. And there were, so there are a couple factors there that were, mm-hmm. that Paul is speaking against. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just follow up question to this. And I think, I think you both will have something to say about this. Um, so, uh, follow up in this from Stacia is, um, is the water and juice wine, um, Jesus is physic is Jesus physically present in the elements? Like I'm, I'm summarizing her question, but yeah. like, what do you guys see just about what these elements are? And even in church history, there's, there's a kind of a swath of what, what people believe. In <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there's, I think the positions are, there's like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and then, uh, just like the remembrance position. Yeah. So transubstantiation, I want to say is Catholic and, uh, feel free to fact check me on this, but that's where it actually, in the process of, um, the mass or the service, it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, so you actually are eating and drinking flesh and blood, um, and there's kind of like a, a communication of grace that takes place there. The Lutheran position is that it's not literal, but the presence of Christ is in, under, and around. I think those are the prepositions. <laughs> it is and isn't is what yeah. I was told. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting yeah. sort of way like to put it. An appeal to mystery there. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the yeah. consubstantiation. And then uh, I'd say um, where where we land more, at least you know, I guess oh, I'm, yeah. I guess I'm newer, but where where we <laughs> land is more so the re- remembrance position. That um, even in here, Paul says. Uh, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So it's yeah. something that we do. That there's, always, there's obviously a similarity between, you know, the, um, like the, the substances of bread and wine are particularly well-suited to serve as symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, but yeah. they don't become the body and blood of Jesus. No, and one might ask, um, if, if, if somebody is saying, no, no, it really does become the body and blood, w- w- wait a minute, Jesus repurposed things that were being used in the Passover Seder, the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And so they were symbolic in Passover, so why would they all of a sudden become somehow real there's some sort of real change to the elements where they become body and blood. Yep. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the even going deeper, Mike, to your point, what I would be concerned about is if there was this, you know, trans, uh, transformation that happens and it's yeah. Jesus' blood and body. It's like, was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not enough? And now we have to continually do this supernatural, spiritual thing, ingest it, have grace be brought on us, 
it's like, wow, this seems as the further, further I go down the rabbit hole, it yeah. seems to cheapen the work of on the cross. Like it wasn't enough mm-hmm. in final, like it's right. continuing to, that's a good point to need to be applied. I don't know if yeah. I'm saying and that right. And if you're not taking it, are you somehow, you run out of juice? You run out of Jesus juice? Yeah, like what yeah. exactly happens if you well, stop? Let me give you some context to that. Um, so I actually have, I come from a very Catholic family. In the Midwest, you're either Catholic or Lutheran. That's mm-hmm. Those are just big, big things out there. And my mom's family is all Catholic. And um, so my mom was inviting um, some people that she knew in her family to come out to Utah to visit them because they live here now. And she really wanted them to come to church. They attend SMCC mm-hmm. and um, they're Catholic. And one of the things that they asked, they said, oh yeah, we'd, we'd come to your church you know, on Sunday. Do you guys take the sacraments every Sunday? And she said, no, it's like once a month. They said, okay, well, we'll have to go to our church and then we, we'll go to yours after. So in, in some sense of reality to them, mm-hmm. they need to partake in those sacraments. Mm-hmm. It has to be a part of like a routine mm-hmm. to to polish up. I don't, I don't know yeah. exactly, you know, I'm probably butchering it, but there's something there to that. Yeah. And I don't know if that's official Catholic doctrine or if that's just um, something that they all learn to believe right. that it needs yeah. to be done on a regular basis. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, I'm not sure either, but yeah. yeah, then maybe there's something to that. So, all right. Well, that's our question, Stacia. So, um, yeah, there's obviously more that you could look into with that, but that's kind of the short and skinny of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go ahead and transition now from our question time to our look at the message from this last week. And luckily, this is, it kind of worked out really well. Trevor preached on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mike preached on Sunday. Well, there you go. That's so, right. yeah, everybody's, uh, everybody's, <laughs> and I listened to the message on Sunday. So, uh, yeah, we want to just kind of walk through this and just jump a, jump a little bit deeper. Sometimes there's just stuff that we cut or we can't, don't have time to mention, and it's kind of nice to be able to walk through that a little bit more. So, Trevor, I actually don't know, you wrote this outline, is that right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. cool, cool. I loved it just for those of you that have or have not listened to the message. I really liked the opening intro of it. Um, kind of just you know, goes back to what are people thinking about, even as we're looking at stories, even as we're looking at things that have been written from even a long time ago, what is it that people have been to a degree, um, obsessed about maybe is the right word or really, uh, they've just been really, their attention has been caught by, um, eternal life. And, uh, so I thought that was a, a really cool intro, but go ahead. What are you thinking about with this Trevor that you think is helpful for people to understand about this message? Uh, yeah, I mean, as we're walking through the um, the parables, you know, in Matthew 13, um, I think there's kind of a clear, obvious connection between this one and the previous weeks. And actually, what we'll see this coming weekend is that these three are all pretty intricately connected, the parables of the hidden treasure, the pearl, and then the net. Um, so it'll be fun to see the connection this Sunday as we kind of wrap all three of them together. You but, said it's like a mini-series. Yeah, it's almost like a mini-series within the series. Yeah. Hmm. Is that What yeah. weeks is that again? Is that five, no, uh, four, five, six? Five, six, and seven. Five, six, and seven. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Once you explain that to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a series in a series. Seriesception. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So Inception. So we'll see if the top spins. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the difference between the pearl and the hidden treasure is that... Uh, the, tri- the hidden treasure, the guy just kind of stumbles on it, whereas with the pearl, he's actively seeking something out, and he's trained in it. He's a- he-, he understands pearls. He knows what contributes to their value, what detracts from it, and so when he sees the pearl of great value, he recognizes the thing that he has been searching for, and for that reason is willing to give up everything for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's kind of tangentially related to the whole topic, but um, I was fascinated as I was reading through the Gilgamesh material. Mm. Um, Utana Pishtin, the guy who is clearly mm-hmm. based on Noah. Yeah, I, I thought oh. like with his name, you could almost shorten it for Utah. Like he's a representative of Utah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, but but just the fact that um, so he and his family and a bunch of animals were spared uh, from the flood by their personal God and given eternal life. And I'm thinking this is this is a truism that's floating around the Mediterranean world and then making its way into other fables. Mm-hmm. This fascinated me because. That's the only God that could actually give anyone eternal life. Mm. And so it, it makes you wonder, I, I mean, who knows how much more of this is based on a true story. Mm-hmm. But when Utana Pishtun tells Gilgamesh, I'm sorry, but you can't have it. I mean, mm-hmm. what was that conversation like? If, yeah. if he really did have eternal, eternal life from his personal God, quote unquote, yeah. who would have been Yahweh? Anyway. Yeah. That, well, also the interesting thing, like, I mean, if we're going to go rabbit trail, I feel like we'll call this the rabbit trail theme podcast. <laughs> That's what this is for. If you wanted <laughs> yeah. the message, go listen to the message. Yeah. This is a difference. So. Yeah. So we, we could talk about like uh, similar themes between all of these with like the Odyssey and Ecclesiastes and even the Iliad. But um, I think one fascinating thing with it is um, when it comes to Gilgamesh, where, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh man, I got Uh-oh. lost with the other rabbit. That's the trouble with rabbit trails. <laughs> There's lots of them. Um, is this the thing you were telling me earlier how, about how the Odyssey deals with eternal life as well? Uh, your, your not one? necessarily, oh. but I'll, I'll talk about that instead, maybe. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think it's interesting that, um, you know, he kills Humbaba and Gilgamesh, the, mm-hmm. this forest monster, gaining like a reputation and fame, but that's not enough for him. Oh, the thing I was going to say. Got it. I Go got back it back. to it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. It's uh, basically when Moses has the encounter in Exodus with God in Exodus chapter 3, God tells him his name, that mm-hmm. I am the Lord, the Lord, which is uh, anytime you see the Lord, uh, or Lord in all caps throughout the Old Testament in particular, it's Yahweh, the personal name that God um, you know, gives to the people of Israel to know him by. Mm-hmm. And that means that even though we see the name, the, the Lord, all throughout the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't actually know God in that way. They didn't have that name. So going back to the flood story, it's just kind of interesting seeing how uh, like lacking the personal name of God that was only revealed later on with Moses when, uh, you know, kind of right around the time the covenant was formed and they became the, the special kind of unique people of God. Um, it just opens the the door more for uh, traces of the story to get twisted and sort of morphed into their own way, like what we see, I think, with Gilgamesh. Yeah. Great point. So, so one thing that I'm thinking about, actually, um, that I just like to 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 kind of review, even just from my perspective, listening to the message, you guys preached it. But so we have the parable that is Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. So it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. So you talked about this. He knows what he's looking for. He's trying to find it. Mm-hmm. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So the, 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 the idea here is that he's looking for this. He's searching, searching, trying to find, he looks at this. He goes, that's not that great. This isn't that great. Okay. I found it. So is it right to understand this parable? Um, can we draw maybe a a parallel or something that's helpful for us? Like this is kind of human, this is humanity looking Mm -hmm. for how do we solve this problem that we're finite, Mm -hmm. finite, limited, uh, people of sorts. Yeah. I think my, I'm sure Mike has a lot to say on this. Yeah. One. <laughs> There's a whole can of worms we go down with this. Well, it it you're right. I mean, in my mind, it's it's 
kind of like what uh, Trevor was saying earlier, like the, the buried treasure guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just stumbles upon it. He's, He's not just really like, oh, looking whoops. for it. It's like, whoa, yeah. there it is right there. And yeah. there are people like that in the world mm. who you will meet who they weren't looking for God, um, but suddenly they find him. Yeah. Um, this guy was looking for the pearl hard. And yeah. I think there's, there are people who are out there who are aware that God exists and they're like, you know, <laughs> I got to look behind door number one, door number two, door number three to figure out, you know. And so they're, they're out there scanning the religious landscape, trying mm-hmm. to figure out which, you know, where is, where is God really? And it says somewhere in, in the Bible, you know, those who diligently seek me will find me. I forget yep. where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of Ren Richardson. You know, here's a guy who uh, was in a religious culture early on, left it, became an atheist for over a decade, and then found hedonism not something worth living for, and then started searching. And um, I think he had kind of a supernatural encounter with God. I'm not quite sure what all the details are. Is this somebody from Draper? Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, he teaches Turning Point. Um, Anyway, so yeah, there are people out there looking for the pearl. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think and, and, and again I'm good with with having a little bit of some some rabbit trails here, but I mean uh, Mike, I know we have even talked at times just about how, and we don't have to go into the complexities of this, but um, we're talking about eternal life and what happens to people. But um, there's something to the idea that it is a little bit unnerving to say, oh yeah, when you just die, you just disappear. Like you just go to nothingness. Like you're it's worm food. You're it's kind of, it's a little bit, um, could we call it agonizing to, to have, I'm, I'm trying to leave, <laughs> I'm leading you on a little bit. Mike, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of our you're, you're pushing him. Where, where do you want me to go there? I don't want you to go too crazy, but I mean like that, I mean, we could say that's generally, that's something that is, I mean, I would say personally, that's bothersome to me. Sure. Um, yeah, it's not the a idea that you thought. would just cease to exist. I just I existed one day, the next day I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the people, the people who act like, yeah, that's no big deal. Like they really believe that they're Darwinian evolutionists or whatever naturalists. And they're like, yeah, I just, I think we just cease to exist. It's going to be on their deathbed that they start to really, mm-hmm. it, it starts to hit them. And, you know, people say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's not as terrifying as like a lake of fire to just cease to exist. Um, but actually when, <laughs> when people are, are talk, when people go deeper with that and are actually asked mm-hmm. the question, how do you feel it is terrifying. I think it's think terrifying. You're no longer <laughs> conscious ever yeah. again. Yeah. That's yeah. hideous. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's all That's all I wanted yeah. to say in that, oh, Trevor's got uh, something. There's but. actually a philosopher um, who was at a school in California. I can't remember what his name was, but there's this really interesting article. I think I came, came across it in the Atlantic, almost like a mini uh, sort of biography. He was nearing the end of his life. He actually had written several books, but one of them in particular was all about uh, why we don't have to be afraid of death and r- approaching it from a philosophical standpoint, saying that death, we don't have to be afraid of it. Um, and yet he was in his 90s at the time of the article, uh, nearing the end of his life, kind of final days. And what he was expressing is like his absolute terror as he was drawing near to death, like just like yeah he wrote a whole book on it like incredibly dense academic philosophical and yet none of those answers proved satisfying Mm. as he actually drew closer to death yeah Um, and i think it's fascinating that we've got that uh you know as recent is you know just within the past um several years and then you go four thousand years back to the epic of gilgamesh and this guy is terrified of death and the one motivation he has is to find eternal life and in the end he, he basically can't find it yeah um, it's a very sad depressing ending yeah it is uh <laughs> so and then you know there's um 
one of the things Eric contributed to the message as we were talking leading up to it was that everyone's searching for something and that really what's at the heart of the search is significance, satisfaction, and security. That my yep. life matters, that it's uh, joyful, delightful. I actually enjoy the life I live um, and some sense of security as well. And mm. I think when you look at what Gilgamesh is looking for, he doesn't just want to live forever in terms of like the, you know, nobody wants to live forever in misery. Yeah. Uh, even like a mediocre life, people want, um, I think when he's looking for eternal life, even what the Bible describes as eternal life, I think is sort of the fulfillment of these three things of significance, satisfaction, and security. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, if we just continue on the rabbit trails, if you jump over to like, if you jump over to the Odyssey, fascinating book, Odysseus uh, at the opening, he's on the island with this goddess Circe, and she actually wants to make him immortal. She wants to give him eternal life. But he won't do it. He actually leaves on this raft uh, trying to make his way back home, which he eventually does because he, he has the chance to have security, to live forever, but it wouldn't be significant. It wouldn't be satisfying because as a king, he wants to be back in his home country in Ithaca. He wants to be with his wife, with his son, even with his, um, even with his parents. And hmm. so it's like he throws away the opportunity for eternal life because it's not the fullness of eternal life that we're actually wired to, to desire, which is significant satisfaction and security. Trevor, I think outside of people who had to read the Odyssey for college, you might be the only guy who's read the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pro- probably true. <laughs> which is a, an indictment of all of the rest of us, but um, that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, pulling us back, because um, you're just being able to spend a little bit of time on that. Basically, we can look at and say, yeah, here's the guy. Uh, as you were saying, Mike, there's some people who stumble upon it. And there's some people who are searching for it and they're like, what, like, what, is, what is there to life? What happens when I die? Like these questions, they're searching, they're searching. Um, and that is this parable. Mm-hmm. So what does this parable leave us with for, for, um, for application, even just changing like our lives or, or, or what, do, what do we do differently? Like, what does this parable have to do? I mean, for me sitting in the seat in 2023 and living in Utah, like, what does this mean for us? Well, I think one thing uh, is you have to define, you have to spend some time defining the kingdom because Jesus says the kingdom is like, right? The kingdom is like, mm-hmm. the kingdom is like, and, um, you know, people haggle over, well, is Jesus the pearl? Is the kingdom the pearl? Is, mm-hmm. is somebody was saying to me today, or is, are we the pearl and Jesus go, comes after us? It like, it's all, wow. Yeah, that is an alternate interpretation. An alternate interpretation for yeah. sure. But he's constantly saying the kingdom. And so... I go back to, okay, if the kingdom is anywhere where God's will is done and God's will is that people follow Jesus and obey everything that he commanded, and then you have to ask, well, why? What happens when you do that? You have a flourishing life Mm -hmm. physically and spiritually when you comport your existence to the way that God is, the way God has made reality to function Mm -hmm. and you love your neighbors yourself and you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you do the things and you act the way that Jesus wants you to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth does set you free. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so to tell people that, hey, that's what you're missing out on. It, yeah. You know, that's, yeah. Actually, with Mike, with even in your own story, because you came to trust in Jesus at 24, mm-hmm. um, sir, you were um, part of like the original like leadership team that planted SMCC some 25 years ago. Yep. Um, and there was a certain point along the way in your walk with Jesus where the kingdom really came to be Almost like a discovery, right? Oh, Almost 100%. hidden treasure that you stumbled it on. It totally was, mm-hmm. a, and yeah. I gave everything for it. Because I think that there was a, there's been a long chunk of church history 
like 150 years of it where there's been this there was this subtle shift from what some writers have called kingdom mission mm-hmm. seeing the gospel and 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 the gospel of the kingdom as a very all-encompassing holistic message that transforms society not just human souls but all of society into just church mission where it was all about get people ready for heaven and there was this sac- sacred secular division that came about. Mm-hmm. And and then people started thinking, well, God only cares about my Sundays and maybe my Wednesday nights, but he doesn't really care about the rest of my life. And so there was, yeah, this kind of dichotomy in people's heads. And so if you do that, then the kingdom becomes, well, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is, the, is it the church? Is it just this amorphous thing, you know, that you're all subjects of Jesus in some way, but not really till later? And then we're sort of shifting now back to a holistic message and a, and a holistic understanding of the kingdom that has a much broader scope to it. And mm-hmm. to your point, I mean, I, I realized that I had a massive deficit when I started asking myself, well, how come I haven't really cared about poverty and things like that? Mm-hmm. It's because the focus that I was getting in my brain was evangelism, evangelism. You know, I thought of good works as the bullhorn on the street corner, not as taking care of your neighbor physically. Mm, And somebody challenged me one time and said, you know what? A cup of cold water isn't the precursor to the gospel. It is the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not that it's a social message only, Mm -hmm. but it's got to be both. Yeah, it seems like in Christendom, I mean, let's say everything in life, there's the pendulum swing, right? Yes. And if we could come to the center, we'd find some really great things of that. The gospel is for for here and now, it is for your neighbors, for society, your culture, your neighborhood, Um, and and also for eternity. So how can we hold those things both in balance? Exactly. It does, yeah, it is about the regeneration of the human heart and the renewal of the mind. But it's all about the. It's also about the renewal of culture and society, mm. because people who follow Jesus will bring the culture of the kingdom, which some people have said is truth, justice, and beauty. Uh, and I think that 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 I think people will get way more excited about that mm-hmm. than um, some sort of fire insurance policy, spiritually speaking, where they're 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 motivated out of fear. They yeah. don't want to go to hell, whatever yep. it might be, or it's just all about heaven whatever that is, yeah. and that's what you make it about. It's like, okay, I accepted Jesus. Well, now I'll just, I guess I'll go about my business until I kick over. You know, the kingdom is a much more compelling message in mm-hmm. my mind. When mm-hmm. I read the, the parable of the pearl, I go, well, that makes sense to me. If it's salvation and, you know, mm-hmm. this flourishing life that we get to participate in, in with God bringing to all of the world, um, yeah, that, that, go, that takes it mm-hmm. to another level for me. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like for me, I'm seeing that even now in small glimpses uh, with my small group, I just see people that um, even recently or not so recently, maybe a few years ago, um, you know, following Jesus, trusting in him. And I'm seeing it work in their, I'm seeing it, them flourish in their personal lives, their professional mm. lives, their family lives. Mm. Um, it, 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 yeah, just does. It's just not, yeah, the fire insurance thing is so cheap. And I feel like I ca- I kind of got into the tail end of that uh, a little bit in, mm-hmm. in my time. Um, yeah, where everything was left behind books and like where, <laughs> and you know, billboards to say, are you going to hell? And like, that was Christianity. Like, yeah. the, you know, Jesus is coming. Do you know where you're going? Yep. And that mm-hmm. was it in totality. <laughs> no. And, and, and so to your point, there was a, there was a point in church history, like I mentioned in the 1800, I think I mentioned in the 1860s where it was the perfect storm. You had liberal theology coming from, um, you know, seminaries in Germany attacking, uh, you had naturalism and, and Darwinian evolution coming, you know, be, becoming popular. And you had this 
what I would say, pessimistic eschatology that Jesus is returning any minute, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, we might as well just focus on getting people ready for heaven, and who cares about, you know, the world's going to burn, so who cares about it? And that created this situation <laughs> where yeah. the kingdom kind of got, well, it got, it got pushed over to the corner because a lot of the liberal churches were using the kingdom language about social justice and this, you know, and just taking care of people. Right. And so the fundamentalist reaction to that was, well, we don't want to do anything that the liberals are doing, so we're just going to focus on souls. Yeah, basically split it down the middle. Exactly. <laughs> so that, you I mean, you could make the argument that this is the most pernicious lie of, the, of Satan was getting the church to fragment yeah. that way and yeah. fracture into two. Interesting, too, when you bring in John 10.10 10 and the purpose of the lies is steal, kill, and destroy, basically to like mm. uh, remove the quality of our lives um, or yeah. lessen it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, one of the interesting things, too, I thought I've, uh, one of the fun things I felt like about this message was uh, we had the Colossians passage that we went to to kind of continue to tease out how you know, being with Christ, being with Jesus, our relationship, being united with him, how that plays into the significance, the satisfaction, and the security that we enjoy in this life. And yet at the end of that passage, uh, Colossians 3, uh, 3 and 4, it mm-hmm. says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, talking about our reality in the present here and now. And then in verse 4, it goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, uh, then you also will appear with him in glory, getting at this idea that, um, you know, we do experience joy in this life. We do have satisfaction, security, and significance. And uh, yet there's like a fundamental change that will take place where each of these are multiplied beyond our wildest imagination when Jesus does appear and we appear with him mm-hmm. in glory. And I think to sort of to unpack that a little bit, we, we leaned into what um, the new heavens and the new earth will be like, walking through those three different images of uh, a holy city, a mountain garden, and a kingdom, which is the one we've been exploring throughout this series. So yeah, um, I thought that was fun. And Mike, I know that that's another topic um, <laughs> among the many topics that you are well-versed in. So <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to chat about it. Well, I, I made the point, I, I geeked out for about 30 seconds in the message on this because it dawned on me when I was reading this, something I had never thought about before. We, we don't really know what the you know, disembodied state of people, of souls in heaven really looks like outside of a couple of passages in, um, I think it's first Corinthians in chapter five, where Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And then in chapter 12, he makes the statements about, you know, going to the third heaven. When I was thinking back about, um, those statements and then reading, um, that first uh, the Colossians passage that you just, I started thinking, okay, we're supposed to set our minds on things above. Um, and so that's heaven, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then we know the new heavens and the new earth. We were talking about Jesus ruling and reigning and his throne room and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, and the new heaven comes down. I mean, I'm sorry, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven yeah. in Revelation. What if the new Jerusalem up in heaven is where the disembodied souls go? Of the Christ followers. Oh, man. Because it says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Well, where is Jesus hanging out right now? It it seems Mm. like it would be in God's temple in the New Jerusalem on Mm. his throne or something like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, and so I just tossed that out there to everybody, (laughs) and I thought somebody's mind just, you know, exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, this, this doesn't answer very many questions, because if you've got Jesus in a glorified, resurrected body 
in the New Jerusalem, and then you have disembodied spirits with him. Like, how does that work? And I'm like, oh, bet I better not go there because I don't have any answers. <laughs> yeah, but it is a fascinating thought. Like, maybe what quote heaven unquote is is the New Jerusalem mm-hmm. in yeah. some other dimension waiting to come down in the future. But then that also uh, assumes that it's literal, and we're not really sure about that either. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows how that all works out? Because I mean, I'm thinking through. You just have a ton of different options on the table that we can't, you know, objectively say this is the way that it works. Right. But um, we do know that. So Jesus is the 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 first fruits. That's something that we see, you know, especially like even in, in Hebrew. So uh, of what is to come. So he's been. Uh, dead, buried, resurrected. He has a resurrected body. So maybe there's some process to us finding that completeness. Because even now, like we don't understand that completely. Paul talks about, you know, mm-hmm. seeing in a mirror dimly. Um, so I don't know exactly how it works, but then one day we will have New Jerusalem come to earth. Mm-hmm. Everything is put right back, including us. Like, yeah. and I think that's a cool thing to focus on with the kingdom. It's like you, no matter what you believe, atheist, agnostic, religious, whatever, you understand that you look at things now and you say, Things are not right. Yeah. I see that happen. I go, that's not right. How could that happen? And yet, all those things will be brought back. To, they, they will be made right. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things will not be left undone. And just be exactly. like, oh, it's too bad that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a great thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, tying together some of the themes that we opened up, you know, humanity is always searching for something, eternal life being wrapped up within that, bothered by death, frustrated by death. Um, Adam, I think a point you've made on a previous podcast is that the, the gnashing of teeth is actually an expression of anger yeah. uh, rather than um, like suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, frustration. And, yeah. yeah. And so setting our minds in the new heavens and the new earth is kind of a way of anticipating what's to come in, in a way that, um, you know, I think helps, helps with some of the fear around death. The, the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is really interesting. John Bunyan, mm-hmm. uh, I think he wrote it when he was in prison, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but for good reasons. He's yeah. in prison for good reasons, where... At the very end of it, it's sort of like a, a metaphor or a, an extended analogy of how of what the Christian life looks like. And at the very end, right before they enter into the holy city, there's a river they have to cross, and uh, the river represents death. And for some, oh. they just wade right across it, and they just walk through, and it never gets above their ankles. So, like the fear never really uh, surpasses; it never really gets a hold of them. Mm-hmm. But others, mm. the the river like swells when they pass over. And they're like struggling. It's up to their neck. They're trying to get across. They're terrified. Oh, wow. And it's just interesting how the experience mm. of death, um, you know, for each person, um, even for those who've trusted in Jesus, it is different. But knowing, having some better understanding of what's on the other side, um, in, in particular, talking about the new heavens, the new earth, the, the mountain garden, the holy city, the kingdom, I think gives us uh, at least a little bit of comfort and in, in a sense of anticipation for what's on the other side. Um, though there's much to do in this life and here and now. No, that's absolutely great. I, and I, I've always thought to myself, I, I, you know, I just don't want to die poorly. <laughs> you know? Like Elvis? Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I don't want to be, you know, a wimp. Like, I, you know, you, you, think oh, yeah. about, you think about being on your deathbed and you're like, you've been, you've been expressing your faith your whole life mm, and then yeah. you're just like terrified in the end mm, you know because yeah. it's like oh my gosh i'm gasping for air and my body's yeah. failing and mm. that just sounds like a really disturbing situation and i'm like yeah. lord help me to just represent you well in mm. that moment and not be mm. freaking out I, I do know somebody who used to attend south mountain who watched her father go through this he is a pastor his whole life and when his life was coming to an end he he was not dying well and mm. um 
that that that's a haunting thought like i just sure. i want to have the, the the fortitude of faith to actually trust the lord in that moment and not not be freaking out and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> flailing about trying to you know stay stay alive or whatever it might be mm, you know yeah. wow i don't know uh, yeah but, Completely different um, topic, but in that last verse in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, I just want to put in my shameless plug for the post-tribulational view, where (laughs) it appears that (laughs) the rapture, if you will, is happening at that moment when Jesus returns and um, we're returning with him from heaven, and other people are probably joining us in the process. So anyway. But Mike, I read books that said differently. Than I that. know. Yeah, <laughs> pop culture doesn't agree with me. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about, we can talk about more, but one thing I want to make sure is the whole mountain garden thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I stumbled onto that that from the Bible Project um, when looking into how the new heavens and the new earth, how it's depicted in Revelation 21 and 22, that this language from the Garden of Eden from the very beginning of the Bible is copied and pasted into John's account, basically expressing that uh, it, it's like a new Garden of Eden. And so uh, in looking into that, it, like stumbled onto how the Garden of Eden was actually a high mountain garden. And part of the reason you know that, there's other things as well, comparisons between Jerusalem and the temple, mm-hmm. uh, which Jerusalem's a city that's on a, a mountain or a hill, right. temple at the very top, and comparisons between that that are made throughout the Bible in the Garden of Eden. But even in the Garden of Eden account, how there's one river that flows through it that forks off into four other rivers and a mountain is the kind of geography that causes that thing to take place. Uh-huh. And uh, I just feel like that's fascinating, like especially here in Utah, where we love mountains and uh, so many things we get to enjoy from like hiking, skiing, snowshoeing, snowboarding, all those different things. And I feel like what this is an indication of, if winter is still present in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, which, you know, is maybe up for debate, then, <laughs> then, then all those activities will still be there. And uh, we can take joy in them in the same way we do now, um, perhaps to an even greater degree. Did you notice that in Utah, the Jordan River combines a freshwater and a saltwater, a dead, a dead sea, the same way it does in Israel? I did, did not. not. Wow. That's why they named it the Jordan River. But it's backwards what? here. Yeah. North to south, south to north. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that might have some implication. Oh, never mind. It's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting reality. It's yeah. backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read into that too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. Or do. <laughs> or do. <laughs> well, anyways, guys, we, we got to wrap this up, but uh, loved our conversation and uh, hope that, yeah, everybody just got um, a little bit more, boy, something from communion to eternal life, death. We got we got all the bases covered today. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, thank you, listeners, for being here today. Thanks, uh, Mike, for hopping on. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, thanks, Trevor, for being here. We'll be back next week. Kind of normal schedule. Eric will be back, and um, just looking forward to that time. As always, thank you, listeners, for being here, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again for joining us for the Fully Delighted Podcast. If you enjoyed this hopeful and helpful resource, we'd love to have you leave us a review or share an episode with a friend. For more information about SMCC, please visit us at our website at smccutah.org. Thank you for trusting us with your time, and we look forward to having you back again soon.